Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. And for the last couple of weeks and the next couple, we, as always, have a theme. And this time it is the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth, one of my most favorite nonprofit organizations, one I have supported for many, many years. Um, they began in 2009 and they are based in Washington, D.C., but their reach is all across the country. So the last couple of weeks, we've talked to Preston Ship, who is their senior policy counsel. Um, the mission of the campaign is exactly what it says, fair sentencing for all juveniles caught up in our justice system. That means a heavy dose of compassion for kids we know come from lives of neglect, abuse, and trauma long before they ever enter prison. So our guest today is a staff member of the campaign. Her name is Catherine Jones, and she is a formerly incarcerated youth herself, incarcerated at the age of 13 for murder. She was not released until the age of 30. She spent her time incarcerated, educating herself, and came home with a degree and several certifications, including a law clerk certification. In collaboration with Fresh Start Ministries, she designed and taught a curriculum for abused women, focusing on emotional healing and building self-confidence. Her experiences with the penal system as a child sparked a passion inside of her to be a voice for those she left behind and for the ones who will come after her. When not wearing her advocacy cape, Catherine relishes her role as mommy to her two beautiful children. Right now, she is co-director of outreach and partnership development. She is a mentor to members of ICANN, and we'll talk more about that, which stands for Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network. Welcome, Catherine. It's good, to, good to have you with us today. I know, I know you're recovering from COVID, so we'll, we'll be gentle on you. <laughs> All right. So you had a unique life experience. And what I wanted to ask you about is its connection to your role at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Can you give us some background uh, on your background? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and good morning, Harriet. Um, good morning. As you mentioned, at the age of 13, um, I had that unfortunate distinction of being the youngest female child ever sent to adult prison um, in the United States. And at 13, according to the criminal justice system, I ceased to be a child. Instead, it became a plethora of other labels that were used to justify treating me subhuman, convict, predator, killer, felon minister society, heartless murderer. Those were the, the labels that you see in the media um, when they talked about me. And I served 16 years and 18, eight months of that 18 year sentence 
um, followed by a lifetime of probation. And when I left when I was 30, I came home with this idea that um, I would have a fresh start and a second chance. And very soon the reality slapped me in my face that society still sought to keep me in bondage with those same labels. As I went back into, for employment, as I went for housing, I was continually denied because of my background. And it made transitioning back into society um, hard. And, and that's an understatement. So uh, now to be in the role that I am at the campaign that provides me the opportunity to assist others that are going through that same type of transition to be a part of helping people that were told that they deserve nothing more than to die in prison um, is such a blessing and something that I promised myself I would do when I came home and to be a voice for those that I left behind. So my my job isn't just my job it's it's my passion and my purpose all right well what i wanted to ask you before we go into your role at the campaign um, i i think we should lay the groundwork for something that i think a lot of people don't completely understand and that is the connection uh, between childhood trauma and criminal behavior i was doing some reading about it just to update myself. And um, one of the statistics that um, came up is that 75 to 93% of kids in prison had at least, at least one trauma in their lives. So can, can you speak a little bit about that? And because I know, know that from personal experience that the um, the trauma that I endured, the sexual abuse that I endured, were, were were really primary factors in my crime being committed. And also recognizing that um, the road to healing um, is is long, it's hard, it's lifelong. Um, I recognize um, that we have to have mechanisms in place to deal with that trauma, and it's not prison but to deal with it holistically and to provide opportunities to rehabilitate and to heal. And prison doesn't offer that. You have three counselors for 3,000 women. Um, you can't say that that you are able to give the type of in-depth opportunities for rehabilitation that are needed in order to heal the root of the problem that caused um, the crime to happen. Often what's looked at um, is the fact that the crime was committed and th the mistake and not the question being asked, why? Why did this happen? It is not um, normal as much as the media tries to portray it for children, particularly Black children, impoverished, marginalized children to just commit harm and just to, it, it's not their nature to be violent. Children have to be nurtured and molded at a young age, which is why when you go into a women's prison, over 85% of the women there have been victims of sexual violence. And they're placed in an environment that further perpetrates their trauma and they're re-traumatized. And so um, the fact that I went through that as a child and then, in, and then further the trauma of incarceration as a child, I'm able to see myself not only in those that I champion for that are incarcerated, but I can see myself in the survivors of youth violence. And I can also see myself in the families of those incarcerated and when you can um, when you can do that, you can come from a restorative justice um, perspective because I do feel like people that have endured the greatest pain are sometimes those that are the greatest advocates. 
because they know exactly what it feels like. Right. Um, talk a, a little bit more about um, about childhood trauma. What other um, factors are there in terms of what a child has experienced and and maybe why why is that connection there between adverse as we we've talked about that on the show uh, adverse childhood experiences why is there that bridge between uh, what a child has experienced that is so um, damaging and then that path, to prison. Why is that? Um, for, for myself, um, I, can, I can personally say that that old saying where violence begets violence mm -hmm. um, is very much true. You don't see um, children and, and you see these, these um, the media, um, huge cases. You never see this child that came from this loving, nurturing household mm -hmm with both parents that had opportunities for healing, that learned the social norms that, so, but when you have a child from a broken home and what you often see is that um, there's uh, a parent absent or a parent incarcerated or um, a, some type of trauma, some type of sexual violence that causes them to look outward to peers that may not be the best influences and, um, and then they get caught up in the system in that cycle. And when we um, talk um, further about women specifically, um, you have these, uh, most of the women you've seen in prison were um, women that got caught up with the wrong guy, that were victims of domestic violence. And um, very rarely is there no pre-existing traumas that contributed to that. And I think it's because um, that nurture versus nature um, mm -hmm. philosophy, you you get what you've grown. Whatever yeah. seeds have been sown, it, the fruit are going to uh, come forth. And so if a violence, trauma, um, sexual assault, all of that is, is inbred into the, the roots of their childhood, there's going to be fruit that come from that tree. And that's just the facts of life. Maybe to... Um a child coming from a background like that, um, not knowing there's anything else, feels that's the norm, that violence is the way you solve things. They don't necessarily know anything else. So or, or in my case, where there were, there were avenues taken, um, social workers, teachers, and, and nothing worked. <laughs> the system what, didn't work. What do you mean nothing worked? Um, there was never any mechanism put in place to stop it. Was there, did you yourself um, try to reach out to, um, you know, whatever you saw as possibly someone who could help and, and did that fail? Yes. Teachers, um, Department of Children and Families, um, social workers, um, there isn't really anyone that was in my 13 year old mind to seek for help that 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 help wasn't sought, and it it the it it went nowhere so if we turn that around if um the system provided more avenues for children like you um would that cycle of prison maybe not 
go anywhere. You wouldn't have gotten that far. I guess I firmly believe that. I firmly believe that there was one person that said, I believe you, I'm going to advocate you and I'm going to protect you, that the outcome would be completely different. I'm going to put a plug in for something I know I've plugged before, but I'm going to do it again. And that is mentoring. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about in terms of what you do. But in the state of Florida, and I I really champion this group, um, there's a group called Take Stock in Children. Um, I don't know actually how old it is, but I know I was part of it for about 12, 13 years. And you are assigned a child um, from a disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged home uh, because they there's a carrot at the end. Um, and so at 12, you meet the child and you make a commitment to stay with them until they finish high school. You visit them every single week. And there isn't much required of the child and there isn't much required of the mentor um, just to be there on a consistent basis for that child. And when they graduate high school, they get a free ride to college. That's pretty terrific. So I think that there is a possibility there with that one adult that is there just for that child. And maybe if you had had something like that, your path might've changed mm-hmm. as possible. So I, I, I really feel that um, mentoring is a key uh, you know, uh, uh, part in this. But also as a former teacher, I think you said teachers, um, unfortunately, didn't hear you either. But there is another possibility is just one teacher who can change a life. So Mm -hmm. if there's anyone listening who are teachers um, and interested in mentoring, I I would say look into that. There's there's a saying that I saw on uh, the campaign's website, no child is born bad. And I asked Preston to speak to that, and he did. I'm going to ask you to speak to that as well. What does that mean to you? It means something completely different to me than out of my mother. Um, Children are born inherently good. They're good. They're a blank slate. And so whatever you write on their souls is what they're going to become. So if you give them positive reinforcement, you tell them what their value is, you so positivity and love and respect into them that's not only what they're going to get but also what they're going to expect from people but if you sow shame and guilt and violence and abuse then that blank slate now becomes this black slate this dark cloud and they're going to their behavior is going to reflect what's been um poured into them so no child is born bad. It's the adults that have to be accountable and responsible for how those children come out. There's an age of accountability, whereas now you have the tools that give you everything to succeed. And what you do at that point is your choice. But as children, when they're young, there's the accountability is on the adults around them. And that's, as, that's why um, Self-care has evolved into community care because we recognize that we're responsible for those around us as well. And so when we stop individualizing it and looking at it and say, well, that's that kid, that's that family, and it has nothing to do with me, 
but we take responsibility for each other as a society, mm -hmm. um, that's when true reform, I think, is going to be possible. Well, I think Hillary Clinton said it takes a village, and I, mm -hmm. I think I think that's true. Um, there's another saying that I like very much. We are not the worst thing we have ever done. And I love that. I think Brian Stevenson coined that one um, and how true that really is. If we could um, look past the crime that a child commits and figure out, um, you know, how to help them, how to turn them around, I, I think... Um, that's what is so much needed. Now, um, in your bio, um, you mentioned Fresh Start Ministries, which caught my eye. Um, I don't know anything about them. How did you connect with them? And why were they so critical in your growth and change? When you said the word mentor, um, <laughs> in my 20s, that's exactly what they became to me. They were a prison ministry a husband and wife that I affectionately call my Betty and Papa Charles. Um, they um, looked beyond what, what I, what I showed, what I displayed to the world, which I was at that time, I was a product of my environment. I, I learned that feelings were a sign of weakness. So I was angry, very stone faced. Um, and then they looked beyond that. They looked beyond that. And I remember them asking, me one question that changed my life. They said, who are you? And initially they were very superficial responses. Um, I'm smart. I'm, um, I'm kind of cute. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm strong. And then as I continued to answer those questions, it, it got deeper and it was, I'm hurt. I'm angry. I'm broken. And so um, they challenged me to face myself in the mirror and then equipped me with the tools I needed to start that healing process. And they did it with unconditional love, no judgment, and it changed my life. So then I began to see myself through their eyes that I had potential. And they recognized my knack for teaching, uh, recognized my leadership and that people looked up to me, but I was often a negative example. And they challenged me to do something different. And so very soon after meeting them within months, I became a mentor um, I um, wrote a curriculum to teach self-confidence to women who were broken because of trauma. And, um, and I stood in front of the class and taught that class. And it just, the reason I am who I am today is because um, even in, in my 20s, I was probably about 24, 25 when I met them. Um, you have the ability to change someone's life even after that 18 year old threshold they became surrogate parents, those missing components, those pieces that I needed. And it changed my life. So I walked into my third as a new person. And, and, and now I had a purpose. And they let me know that the sky was the limit and you can do anything. So now all of these great things that happen, it's like we told you, we told you what you could do. And um, even after I came home, they helped in my transition and supported me. I'm still in almost daily communication with both of them. And um and now I want to pay it forward and be that mentor to other people because I know the power that one person has to change someone's life. And it's not always because you're a celebrity or you have this high profile. It's just your day-to-day -day interaction on how you treat people, even if it's just a smile or a hug or a genuine, how are you today without expecting that automatic response? 
Oh, I'm fine. Ask how you're doing with intentions on getting an honest answer. Now, how would you say, that's a pretty powerful statement about them. How, besides, as you say, unconditional love, how do you think they reached you? What were, were there something, were there things that were very specific that they did or maybe didn't do that pulled you in? Um, yes, I had an experience with religion and there was like a list of do's and don'ts. And at the time, um, it was me and my girlfriend together. And typically the church people, if they seen you were with someone of the same sex, would turn you away. Mm-hmm. And they invited me in, in spite of, you know, whether it was against their beliefs or not. It was like, come as you are. And because that's how God takes you and that's how we're taking you. And I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what kind of lifestyle you live. I love you. And that was monumental to me, like the the lack of judgment. And not even most people, when they found out how long I had been in prison or when, wanted to know exactly what happened in the details. And they never cared. They never asked until they heard some of my speaking engagements. There were things that they never knew about me because it didn't matter to them. And that was huge. Oh, that that's great. That's really... Um, we're almost out of time, but we're going to talk again. I know you said you'd come back and we could continue. Um, but I was wondering what other kinds of support um, while you were incarcerated were there for you? Was Fresh Start pretty much it or were there other things? Um, Fresh Start was pretty much it. There were a couple guards um, that mm. actually were um, instrumental in, in me changing and, and um, one of them, um, him and his wife both worked at the prison and they were the same. Um, they looked at me and said, you have potential and I'm going to treat you like a human being. They called me by my name. They didn't call me inmate. And I, it started allowing me to embrace my identity and who I was versus the identity placed on me by the system. Mm-hmm. That's that, you know, it's, it's rare that um, someone will say uh, one of the corrections officers was um, a positive influence, but that's really nice to know. I mean, I, I guess there are all kinds of people who choose to be corrections officers, um, very decent people and some not so decent, like mm-hmm. any profession, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's great. Um, I, what I'd like to do um, when you return is I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about the curriculum that you wrote, as you said, you became a teacher. Um, and that is certainly very, very powerful. So I, I would like you to talk about that. And um, we'll talk about uh, your role at the campaign and the ICANN um, part of it uh, when when uh, we talk again and also um like to talk about uh the unique issues that women face but also um children since you were a child in the system for a very very long time uh, at, at 13 so you, you really weren't an adult i in in i guess in the eyes of the law uh, you become an adult at 18 but certainly not maturation wise. It, it yeah. took you a long time to, to get there, as you say. So I, I really 
think that um, our listeners have gained a great deal by hearing what you brought to uh, to your incarceration and how things began to turn around for you. And that's that gives us tremendous optimism and hope that it, it can be done. Like I can, right? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that uh, that phrase there. So I'm delighted that you're going to join us again, and we look forward to uh, speaking with you soon uh, and finishing out our our time with you. And thank you for being here today to enlighten our audience. So thank you for listening to Pursuing Justice, and we'll see you next time on Society Bites Radio. This is Harriet Hendel. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet.